Great. So I'm joined by Koji. How are you doing today, man? Doing well. How are you? You know, I'm great. That is great to have you on. I'd love to just quickly get kind of a two to three minute rundown on who you are and what your story is. Sure. Sounds good. So I'm Koji, Japanese-American. Uh, grew up on the East Coast of the U.S. Uh, my undergrad was in engineering and I, I started off on the uh, not so good side of the of the climate spectrum. I, I was working at ExxonMobil for uh, six years. Um, so that was in kind of the global projects division, working mainly on, on downstream projects. Um, and I definitely learned a lot, especially in the energy space. And the, the last project that I worked on was a $800 million hydrogen project, which is the, the largest in the UK. Um, whereas that's gray hydrogen and uh, you know, but that's that's what we're looking to display. So, um, and then I, I think it, it became quite clear um, that ExxonMobil is going to be the the very last oil major to, to transition. I don't know if I should say that publicly, but uh, you know, that's that's my opinion at least. Um, and so uh, I I left. I started working on a couple different um, climate tech startups, trying to you know repent for my sins. So. Uh, I was a early hire at uh, a company called Last Energy, which is doing small modular nuclear reactors, um, raised three million uh, seed, uh, and that, that's U.S. based. And then I was a, a, the first hire at a company called NeoCarbon, so uh, based in Berlin, doing direct air capture uh, using cooling towers. So they raised um, one and a quarter million pre-seed, and now I'm doing. Green hydrogen. So obviously, I'm I'm very interested in these, you know, emerging kind of breakthrough uh, innovations that have the the biggest potential to to make you know huge contributions to the to the climate crisis. And I'm actually also finishing on my MBA at London Business School, so I've got about uh, two weeks left <laughs> at the time of this recording. Awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. I really love your kind of. It's a bit of a patchwork background, but there's also a clear progression that you're working towards, like a bigger vision. Before we dig into your company, I just want to ask as well on the MBA point, kind of why did you decide to do it and kind of what value is it bringing to you in the moment? Because, you know, a lot of people go straight from industry, you know, into making a startup and you often kind of hear about, you know, the lack of commercial experience, meaning that it's quite difficult to raise from investors, et cetera. Is that one of the value adds of the MBA that you found? Yeah, so... um my background, you know, starting off as an engineer and, and most of the work I was doing at ExxonMobil was engineering. So it is kind of mix of technical, a little bit of project development, but um, I knew I wanted to eventually start uh, my own company in the climate space, especially, I guess, you know, we, we talk a lot about additionality um, in, in the climate space. And I, I was kind of considering my own additionality and what's the best value I can bring. And certainly I can work at one of these companies that, you know, progress along uh, a technology and, and do my part there. But I, I felt combined with, you know, my technical background, especially within the energy space, and then bearing that up with uh, an MBA, that would give me the, the right skill set to be able to, you know, identify these new up and coming, like, breakthrough uh, innovations and, and really lead that through into uh, commercialization. So, um, you know, I, my, my work at both uh, Blast Energy and, and Neocarbon, 
you know, they were both time box, which is the reason I, I left. One was, you know, right before I started the MBA, and the other one was kind of an internship between my first and second year. So it's not like I left on, on bad terms or anything, and they're both going well. Um, and I would have been very happy continuing on with either of them. But uh, I, I think the most value that I can bring is trying to identify this completely new uh, potential and innovation and, and trying to, to, to push that along. So the, the MBA was uh, a way to, to help round that out. And definitely the, the network that it brings, um, I, I think, has, has helped uh, immensely for sure. I think there's a great lesson there as well for kind of, you know, early, early deep tech founders or wannabe founders, such that kind of taking the necessary steps to build up your skill set before you actually take that dive in um, at the deep end. Not only the MBA, but, you know, kind of these shorter term internships to kind of wet your beak a little bit in the startup world and look into more climate solutions. I think that's really intelligent. Um, yeah. So, so let's go straight on to Key Hydrogen, then your startup. Can you talk about kind of what you guys do and why did you see this as an opportunity to kind of put all of your eggs into this basket? Yeah, so um, Key Hydrogen, we are a kind of deep tech climate venture uh, and the, the real goal is to make cost competitive uh, green hydrogen. And we do that by um, sourcing it from a technology called biomass electrolysis. Um, so I guess to to give the the broader background for a, a water speaker or, or listening base in terms of you know today the world has a massive problem um, an existing problem that you know although we talk about hydrogen and all the new things that it can or can do there's uh, you know 94 million tons of hydrogen that the world is already producing today it's an existing 150 billion dollar market. Uh, but 99% of that hydrogen is sourced from fossil fuels. And that leads to direct emissions of over 830 million tons of CO2 every year. So that's kind of similar to the aviation industry. So that's a massive problem today that we can solve or need to solve by displacing that with uh, what we call like carbon-free um, hydrogen or, or green hydrogen. And today, the, the really only commercially way to do that is a technology called water electrolysis. So use renewable electricity to split water into hydrogen and oxygen. Um, but the challenge there is it's extremely energy intensive. And the cost of that ends up kind of in the kind of five to six dollars a kilogram uh, mark, whereas gray hydrogen, the, the fossil fuel-based hydrogen is like one and a half to $2 a kilogram. So, you know, at the end of the day, it's a commodity uh, chemical. And unless we can get to cost parity, you know, we're not going to see kind of significant drivers to uh, displace it. So when we, we, when we started looking at tackling um, this issue, we went back to just the, the first principles of, okay, well, break it down. What are the biggest cost drivers for for water electrolysis? Well, it's very clearly about seventy percent of the levelized cost is from the uh, the energy demand. So you need to put in a lot of electricity um, to to produce this hydrogen. And to to give a sense today, um, the these water electrolyzers will require maybe around like fifty kilowatt hours of electrical input to produce one kilogram of, of green hydrogen. And that's around the same amount of electricity that in uh, a UK household will use an entire week. So 
a weekly consumption of households electricity. And yet we need to get that down to $2 a kilogram. So, you know, very tough challenge. And it's, it's not really even a, a technology problem that we can solve with more le- efficient electrolyzers. There's a thermodynamic kind of limit, a, a minimum amount of energy you need to split water apart. And that barrier is, is, is very high. So there's a very high floor. So when I talked about 50 kilowatt hours, um, there are some electrolyzers that can get that down to kind of 45 or 42. But fundamentally, there's a limit of around 40 kilowatt, uh, 40 kilowatt hours of, of electrical input you still need. And that's like pretty much at 100% efficiency. So you cannot get below that with water electrolysis. So also, so just as a quick recap, then yeah. you're really kind of lowering the energy required to create green hydrogen uh, by essentially thinking about it from first principles and changing out the water for a different feedstock. It, it, exactly. So because we've we found because of that barrier, um, you essentially have to get your hydrogen from somewhere else uh, instead of pure water splitting. So there's two main camps. You can either source it from uh, methane or natural gas, which is what's done today. Or there's another kind of uh, technology called methane pyrolysis, which uh, you so you get carbon black, so like sequestered carbon as a byproduct, so it's not emitted, but you're still sourcing your feedstock from methane, right? And there's significant emissions from methane extraction and, and leakage. So we see that as kind of an interim solution. So we're focused on the the more you know end game state that we see, which is sourcing it from uh, biomass. And when we talk about biomass, it's specifically we're working with liquid biomass. So that can be um, waste from breweries, from paper pulp uh, production, sugar manufacturing, or even down to agricultural waste. And essentially, we, instead of uh, kind of oxidizing the, the water and creating the oxygen there, we're oxidizing the, the biomass, breaking that down into these shorter chain carbon acids, uh, which are actually chemical commodities that we can uh, sell as, as co-products. But that reaction of, of breaking down that, that biomass is much less energy intensive. So when I was talking about, you know, today electrolyzers require maybe 50 kilowatt hours, they can go down to 40 kilowatt hours, but that's the fundamental floor. For us, you know, biomass electrolysis has been lab demonstrated to produce hydrogen down to 10 kilowatt hours. So it breaks through that fundamental barrier. And that's where we see the, the huge step change of being able to produce green hydrogen down to the $2 a kilogram mark by significantly reducing that energy requirement, plus also making useful chemical co-products that we could sell. Right, yeah. I really like the angle just to kind of reiterate if anyone missed it, that you're using waste streams to kind of source of these biomass uh, products for the inputs, the electrolyzers, which of course, you know, is beneficial for the environment, as well as you having an additional revenue stream for what's produced. Is your plan always to kind of produce from, as you said, the the waste from breweries, or are you looking to widen the range of feedstock that you take in in the future? Yeah, we, we definitely want to widen it. So that, that's where we'll start. And it's a bit easier to work with that because, you know, it's it's been boiled and then mashed. So it's it's a bit more processed and, and it's known what's going to be in it. But in order to scale it, we know we need to start looking at more kind of agricultural feedstock. So, you know, we, if we talk more around like woody waste and then crop residue, then it's hundreds of millions of tons, if not billions of tons, you know, that's that's produced uh, globally. Um yeah. 
and we say kind of you know, biomass waste for 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 shorthand, uh, but we do know uh, sometimes in these industries they they are very much treated as as co products. So like brewers spend grain at breweries today, they kind of you know spend some energy uh, drying it out, uh, and then they pelletize it, sell it off for for animal feedstock. So they they do get some margin there. So in our economics, we are still um, you know accounting for purchasing that biomass we're not assuming we're getting it for free um but still even with taking into account those costs we we see it being cost competitive no yeah makes a lot of sense i think um in the context of you know you see all of these business models where the startup essentially comes on with their hardware and they tack onto an existing power plant or waste um producing factory whatever it may be um, and then kind of employ a licensing model whereby they can just license out the technology instead of having to build it all themselves. Can you talk about, I understand you guys are adopting that licensing model. Can you talk about the pros and the cons of that and why you decided to do it? Because I remember when we last spoke, you mentioned a really interesting point around kind of US investors liking to keep all of the pie yeah. and EU investors, obviously generalizing here, typically like to have this kind of asset light model. So can you talk about, you know, why exactly you chose licensing? So in terms of the uh, the business model, yeah, we were focusing on this asset-like kind of technology licensing play uh, because we know uh, as we scale up, uh, this becomes a very asset-intensive process, and we want to focus on what you know what's the differentiating factor that we bring, what's our expertise, which is the technology, and continue to innovate on that. Um, so we want to remain a technology company as opposed to becoming like a logistics company or, uh, you know, a manufacturing company because there are existing companies today that do those things. You know, there, there are plenty of uh, hydrogen project developers, even like moving around biomass. There are, there are operating biomass power plants today where, uh, you know, companies move around millions of tons of biomass. Um, and even on the electrolyzers, we're not looking to make a new bespoke electrolyzer and, and have to manufacture that ourselves. We, our technology will be compatible with kind of off-the-shelf alkaline electrolyzers. Um, so we can rely on these building global supply chains and uh, essentially partner out those uh, asset-intensive pieces while we focus on um, yeah, the, the technology licensing bit. So that's, that's definitely a, a business model that's, that's resonated quite well uh, in, in Europe, um, the, the difference we, we see a bit when we speak with American investors is much more that kind of, you know, go big or go home mentality of, you know, why are you limiting yourself to this this slice of the pie? Like you should capture the whole thing, you know, you should own and operate and then build. I mean, just the, the risk appetite is, is much higher and and also the the capital availability is, is, is much higher. So, you know, I've, I've heard people just say, you know, if, if it's a good technology and the, the business model works, then like capital is unlimited. Like don't go, don't be worried about, um, you know, being capital intensive. So it, it is a bit of a, um, it, it's quite interesting how stark of a difference it, it is, uh, the, the two. No, that's, that's fantastic insight again. And I know some startups are kind of looking at contracts, manufacturing and a bit of revenue sharing, uh, which I think some VCC is like a, almost like a happy middle ground. Is that something you explored at all? Or are you like, no, we're going to purely be kind of a technology R&D company and leave all of the manufacturing to the external players? Yeah, we especially 
what we might get into is more kind of on the project development or also just like combining the different industries because you know electrolyzer uh, companies today and then traditional green hydrogen project developers aren't really speaking to these like large biomass producers whereas you know as we scale up the technology we'll be building those relations um but we don't see ourselves really getting into the 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 manufacturing per se that's that is kind of the most uh, kind of capital intensive part and just scaling manufacturing ability is is such a you know different expertise area entirely i will say i mean th this is very much our, our strategy now but the next kind of you know 18 months two years is very much continuing out this, this laboratory prototyping building our demonstrator so regardless of the strategy our our, our next kind of year term is, is is the same and depending on how the macro trends uh play out of course we'll, we'll remain uh flexible no, also makes perfect sense. And then I kind of want to zoom out a bit to more of a general hydrogen discussion. I remember last time we spoke off camera, you made an interesting point. You said hydrogen should re reach cost parity with fossil fuels, and then we should start thinking about the use cases afterwards. Um, I just wanted to know, kind of, I wanted you to clarify that sentence. And, you know, because I've spoken to a number of VCs and obviously, you know, even if they specialize in hydrogen, they say things along the lines of, okay, find the use case first and then try and solve for it. Um, is that what you meant by that statement or is it a bit more nuanced? Yeah, I, I think it's more. So when I when I talked about that, it was, yeah, getting green hydrogen to cost parity with fossil fuel based hydrogen, which I mentioned is is already an existing huge market. And, and you know, there is a big demand for that there. And if we can get cost parity green hydrogen, then you know then we can start working to directly start displacing that um i think especially investors coming into the the industry they get they get very excited about these emerging use cases for hydrogen which which i'm also a, a big fan of especially you know i don't think it's the best applications or they're, they're never really going to be around you know passenger vehicles and and home heating those we have have a simple simple kind of electrification uh options for and, and it's way more efficient to electrify um but it's those hard to decarbonize sectors hard to electrify sectors like heavy industries you know heavy shipping and um, transportation steel manufacturing those are all very exciting kind of um yeah avenues of, of where hydrogen hydrogen can go and start um, decarbonizing even more aspects of, of, of industries. But I don't think we have to be so um, reliant on saying, okay, well, we're going to wait until these industries or these new applications take off and then we start investing in making green hydrogen cheap to do that. We should be doing that anyways, because if we are serious about net zero, then we know we have to displace even existing gray hydrogen with with green hydrogen. No, that makes perfect sense to me. And I think um, and another argument would be that we do need regulation to kind of spur that initial, get that initial spark going. Because of course, you know, in a lot of these applications, particularly in heavy industry, it's going to be very hard to achieve cost parity in the near term without deployment. And obviously it's a bit of a catch-22 because like, how do you deploy if the customer is not going to buy with a green premium? Um, do you kind of agree with that in terms of we do need these regulations to really kickstart hydrogen adoption and then only a scale will actually achieve cost parity and 
theoretically reach some kind of inflation point whereby, you know, the uptake takes off? Yeah, I mean, it, it is a very much the same with kind of all these other, um, you know, clean tech solutions around solar PVs and, and uh, electric vehicles. They, they all came into ex- existence or they accelerated through a lot of subsidies or, or other regulations. So I'm definitely for, um, you know, anything that helps accelerate the, the, the speed of deployment and, and these cost learnings. Um, but I think what's really important to keep in mind is, is we always have to view subsidies as like an interim solution. We, we can't have um, these technologies become reliant on subsidies, which is the same way solar and, and EVs went. It helped kickstart, but eventually you, you, uh, the, the subsidies die away. Um, as long as you have a pathway to becoming cost competitive, so that's why we we're very um, you know pushing on on our technology because we see a very clear pathway to being cost competitive without subsidies. We see that as a real challenge uh, with water electrolysis because uh, I was mentioning you know that that fundamental energy barrier which basically makes you reliant on extremely cheap electricity prices to to make that you know, get down to cost parity. So when you look at all these cost curves, they're, they're talking about, you know, getting down to electricity prices of like 15 or $20 a megawatt hour, which is, um, yeah, in, in places like Australia, Chile, you know, Middle East, where you can get cheap uh, renewable electricity. I, I think that, that that works. But in many other places, especially Europe, um, I, I see that as, as a big barrier. And and also importantly for us is the um, the opportunity costs of all this electricity, right? Because it's not just the cost of it being cheap; it's so much of it. And again, to to provide some context, when I was talking about the 94 million tons of hydrogen that we produce today that we need to decarbonize, if you want to displace that with all of it with with green hydrogen tomorrow, uh, with 100% efficient water electrolyzers. You would need more solar. You would need more electricity than we have of you know entire solar and wind electricity available today. So it's the amount of electricity that we would need to deploy solely for hydrogen production if we're going the route of water electrolysis is is immense. And we yet we can't even deploy it fast enough to electrify the things that we want to. Um, so that that's how I see it kind of play out. Yeah, it's really insightful. So it's really an energy problem uh, that you guys are looking to solve. And then kind of a problem or, you know, conversation topic that always comes up is hydrogen infrastructure and all of these barriers are actually rolling out hydrogen. Okay, it's great that we can get the production down, but we have to look at the whole value chain and think about distribution and the offtake and, you know, what are all of the end use cases? Um, Obviously, you guys are dealing with production. Do you see any barriers in terms of the distribution and obviously these end use cases kind of being slow to adopt? You know, what are the biggest kind of fish to tackle there? Yeah, I mean, huge barriers all along the value chain, which is what makes it very tricky. Um, So yeah, transportation, storage. Um, I I guess where a lot of uh, countries seem to be going is focused on these regional kind of hydrogen hubs and valleys targeting industrial clusters, building out the common infrastructure to move around the, the hydrogen. So I, I think that's that's what's going to make the most sense. 
Um, and at the end of the day, that's also where we would like to kind of target once we get to more centralized plant scale is co-locating the production with the off-takers, right? Because so you, you try to minimize as much as possible uh, that transportation piece, um, as, at least regionally. But this is, again, where when we zoom out even further, um, there's a lot of reports saying actually the cheapest places you're going to, you can make hydrogen kind of cost competitively is only going to be these very select regions uh, like Australia, where then you have to ship it out. Um, and then, you know, that's that's how we we, we build out the global infrastructure supply of, of hydrogen. But again, that's because they are saying, actually, these are the only places where we can get such cheap electricity where it makes sense to produce hydrogen. Whereas for us, we're, we're opening up the 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 scope of, of where you can deploy hydrogen cost competitively because we're not so reliant on that cheap electricity price. Yeah, that's that's really insightful. Again, I think um someone told me that electrolyzers at the moment only really make sense in a centralized model. You know, if you kind of run these models and you look at the analysis, that it only makes sense cost wise to have these things at scale in a centralized manner. Do you see it the same way? Or do you kind of see electrolyzers, you know, maybe in the next 10, 10, 20 years turning out like solar and wind have, which is a lot more decentralized nature? Yeah, I mean, that, that's interesting. I guess maybe just because of the, the infrastructure that's not built out yet. But electrolyzers are pretty much inherently modular. So you can just stack more of them together. Um, so... I, I see I see flexibility there where, you know, of course, there's going to be economies of scale when you centralize it, and especially if you're tackling, you know, these huge use cases of, of hydrogen, of these industrial uh, use, then, yeah, you just need to make a lot of it in that one location to, to meet the demand. Um, but I wouldn't say that there's nothing kind of inherently stopping also a, a more decentralized model as well, especially if we expand out use cases for, for this hydrogen. No, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense as well. And then you kind of touched on storage. I know we talked about this last time in our conversation in terms of taking electricity, storing it as hydrogen, and then converting it back into electricity to kind of obviously solve this big renewables storage problem isn't an effective solution just because of the losses involved, you know, and all the leakages and these conversion factors. Uh, but do you think it ever makes sense? Because I've obviously talked to some people who say really bullish on hydrogen storage and say, okay, there's an existing natural gas pipeline, you know, under the UK, for example, that we can exploit. Um, it should be used for kind of seasonal or longer term applications such that you're not always converting it back and just keeping it there as almost like a baseload kind of power. Uh, do you agree or disagree with that? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll say honestly, you know, I haven't looked too deeply into the storage application specifically um but i definitely see the the potential benefits there because in general obviously as we electrify the the grid to to more renewables we will need a lot you know longer term duration storage and even if it's not the most efficient uh which which the round trip efficiency is, is certainly not good for for hydrogen and returning it back to electricity um it still may be worthwhile until we find kind of a, a better solution. So I'm on all for kind of keeping all the cards on the table and, and not saying, you know, this doesn't make sense because of X, Y, Z. I, I feel like there will be definitely some applications where it, where it will make sense 
will it be the dominant technology? You know, I probably not, but I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. And kind of going off that, it sounds like you're probably a proponent of nuclear as well, given your background. Um, can you talk about kind of the pros and cons of nuclear and obviously all of this Ferrari around, you know, Germany closing their power plants, a lot of controversy around that. Do you see nuclear as something that we need to continue to invest in um, and that can continue to provide like a very consistent, reliable baseload? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> obviously it does get very controversial, but um, trying to stay a, a bit high level, I, you know, same same philosophy. I, I think we we need to look at all technologies and especially without um, a clear solution in long, you know, long duration storage, we will need significant amounts of base load clean energy. And nuclear is, you know, if it's not nuclear, then it's hydro or geothermal or, or maybe tidal. But, you know, uh, hydro is, is very location dependent as, as is geothermal and uh, tidal is, is very much emerging. So, Nuclear is, is a kind of a, a really good um, and you know proven, obviously technology that that provides base load clean energy, and yeah, there, there are of course a lot of concerns, uh, but again, it yeah, you, you just have to to look at you know what options do we have if we are being serious about trying to decarbonize uh, the the electricity grid. And then can you talk more about small modular reactors, given your background? I know you kind of worked in there for a shorter period of time. Can you maybe explain to any listeners, you know, what exactly they are and what are the pros and cons? Because I feel like, you know, if you just scan the internet and do a quick cursory read about these things, you kind of assume that you could like, almost like have them in your house. or like there's these kind of small, very modular reactors, as the name implies. But in actual fact, you know, most of them need to have special kind of facilities. Most need to have some kind of hole dug in and they put under the ground. Um, can you just elaborate more about the uh, the landscape there? Yeah, so definitely, yeah, they're, they're called small modular reactors, but they're small compared to normal nuclear plants, but they're not, they're not small, right? They're, they're, they still will be kind of like, could be like factory size and enough to, to power like a, a, a town. Um, but essentially what um, it's trying to solve there is taking aside kind of the, the safety concerns of, of, of nuclear, um, which there's plenty of debate around, the, it still goes back to the economics, right? Because if it's if it's so uneconomical to to deploy nuclear, which kind of it has been shown through kind of previous uh, uh, projects, then it, it still doesn't make sense. So what small modular nuclear reactors are trying to do is is get away from these huge, you know, ten billion, ten year nuclear power plants that um, always face a bunch of uh, capital overruns and, and delays and. That feeds into the the negative public uh, perceptions as well, um, and move from a project model to more of a product model, where you know you get something nice and standardized. It's smaller, but you know how to build it, and then you kind of keep iterating, making it cheaper, getting away from these very you know, specialized um, stick built or built out into the field, and and that's where a lot of these expenses start growing. So. Um, yeah, they're they're not that small, but it's it's really looking at a different business model 
um, to to drive down the costs. And it's it's interesting because you know it's it's not just nuclear that's going this way. We uh, the the last few projects I was doing at Exxon Mobil, even like in traditional oil and gas, is is looking at the same strategy because of realizing it is cheaper to make things modular. So um, instead of even these big plants that we were uh, you know building, instead of having a bunch of people in the out in the field and and uh, field erecting as they would call um, sometimes they'd be like a, a fab shop somewhere else in a different country where they build a lot of these facilities in kind of this modular fashion and then just put it on like a giant barge and, and move it over to the site so it's similar and, and they're doing that yeah because it, it drives down the the cost so it's a, it's kind of a similar idea there yeah it makes a lot of sense and has this technology been commercialized uh, to what degree has it kind of what are the use cases at the moment and maybe thinking about what do you see the best use cases for it in the next 10 years? Yeah, I haven't followed too closely, um, but I have seen kind of, you know, snippets here and there. I don't know if they've fully commercialized yet, but um, there's definitely strong interest, especially like um, countries like the UK are, are quite bullish in small modular reactors. So the, the government's put a lot of uh, funding towards that. Um the best use cases, I mean, definitely anywhere where it'll bring the best kind of grid stability or directly displacing carbon intensive uh, uh, emission sources uh, or other forms of electricity production, but also kind of remote locations is actually quite interesting. Like if you have like a remote mining town, essentially, which needs a lot of energy demand and because it's so far off the grid, maybe they're just run on a bunch of like diesel generators, which are kind of the, the worst in terms of environmental impact. Displacing that with a, a kind of a smaller reactor would would uh, definitely be really good. And, they, and again, the name's small, but I actually read that some of these reactors can theoretically power small towns and villages and all of this stuff it, exactly. quite easily. So yeah. yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And then in the same vein of kind of emerging technology, something we've obviously heard about for a long time is carbon capture. And you have a little bit of experience in the space again. Kind of what are the problems there? Is it just simply a case of cost again? Is the barrier for adoption? And if so, how can we get that down? Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's all cost. It's always, it's always cost. Um, and I mean, yeah, it's, it shouldn't be too surprising, I guess. It's you're, you're trying to sequester out carbon out of the atmosphere, atmosphere where CO2 is like 0.04%. Um, so it's, it's extremely dilute. And so it just requires a lot of energy to try to um, concentrate that, that out. So yeah, there, there's the direct kind of atmospheric capture, but then there's also other technologies that are looking at like enhanced rock weathering so accelerating natural um, processes or uh, kind of relying on biomass to capture that co2 and then doing something with that biomass whether you, you store it so um, yeah it, it's all about driving down those those costs and and actually it does tie back uh, a little bit to to what we're doing because we're also starting with kind of biogenic carbon sources like biomass um, the difference for us is as we're you know, producing hydrogen, all the carbon stays in liquid form. Um, hydrogen's our only gaseous product, so no CO2 is emitted and released to the atmosphere. Um, and actually, the, the the carbon stays in these useful liquid forms that we can uh, sell as co-products. So technically, that can also be counted as a 
as a as a form of I guess carbon um, reduction removal. Um, if it's if it's not emitted and starting from biogenic sources, is not an angle that we're we're super focused on the moment, but uh, definitely a, an option. No, absolutely, yeah. Of course, within the context of your startup, and I know kind of CO two sequestering the carbon is very popular. You know, you have all of these direct air capture kind of fittings, retrofitting on existing plants, and you can theoretically have a carbon neutral system. I think another really interesting one is, you know, I think you alluded to it, but, you know, putting it back into concrete and building building mixing materials uh, to improve the mix qualities. Are there any other really interesting, you know, things on the horizons you may have read about in terms of actually dragging the CO2 out of the air and not just kind of obviously reducing the greenhouse gas emissions and hopefully reversing climate change, but using that carbon in really useful end products? Yeah, I, I think that's most uh in terms of like durable storage that's mostly what i've seen as like sequestering it into like building materials whether it's concrete there's also this whole field around like biochar right so you you take um kind of biomass again you uh kind of parallelize it and then you can use that as as building materials or in sometimes kind of plastic replacement so i think the whole ecosystem around use cases for carbon uh, captured carbon and then having durable storage for it is 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 really exciting uh, using it as this fertilizer i've seen as well so uh yeah i it's it's really quite interesting so yeah it really excites me as well just seeing the the rate of development and where it's going to go in the yeah. next five to ten years are really picked up and then maybe man just to finish off um some advice for kind of founders as well if we bring it back to startups i know you're kind of a member of i think more than one accelerator if i'm not mistaken um what are the values of accelerators in the context of deep, deep tech startups? Because I've spoken to, you know, the guys who run various university spin-out courses and this and that, and they often cite problems of, you know, this accelerator had too many scientific people or, they, you know, there were too many finance people that didn't understand the science and there's not really that blend. And I think a model that seems to be emerging that works quite well is really having this strong ecosystem where up and down the value chain, you know, you bring in the right advisors and the right people that can help these startups grow depending on where they are in their journey. Um, do you agree with that statement at all? Is there any other insights you have around accelerators? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you summarized it quite nicely. So, so yeah, we were we were uh, born out of the Carbon 13 kind of venture builder program. Um, and that's kind of explicitly what they try to do is, so it's, it's bringing in individual founders that join the program who specifically want to launch a venture in the climate space, but don't have a team, not necessarily even an idea. And the first phase of that program is the teaming where you're speaking with all these other people, finding the right co-founding team around a, a specific idea. But they they purposely, you know, the cohort that they bring in is like 50% commercial, 50% technical. Um, but it's not like they they force you together and say like okay you two or three will be the perfect match so so talk to each other you know it, it does the teams do kind of grow organically but you know you have the right diversity of of skill sets that it makes sense that you're gonna end up with a team where you'll have that strong technical expertise and a strong kind of commercial expertise so I I think Carbon Thirteen is a, a really good program. Um, that that mixes those two, and and yeah, we also joined the uh, Undaunted Greenhouse uh, Accelerator, which has been you know also fantastic for us. We've been in for about two months, and kind of the the resource and again the the network they provide has been really invaluable. 
Yeah, that's the Imperial College one, right? Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. I do well. Congrats again because you know it's not easy to get onto even one accelerator or venture builder course. So that's really great work. And then maybe as a final point before we wrap up, kind of something I ask all the time, which is one piece of advice for deep tech founders. Obviously, you know you're not doing something in software where you can keep iterating your product all the time, and it's you know relatively easy to go out and find customers. Um, just give me the kind of insight into what hardware founders, deep tech founders, should think about when starting a company. I mean, I, I feel like I should be the one asking for advice. Like, uh, <laughs> as in, you know, it, we, we are still a very new venture. Um, we officially incorporated the company in December of uh, last year and we're raising our uh, seed. So still, still very new for us. But I, I would say, yeah, it is a very different approach, especially in, um, you know, London, where historically a lot of the startups have been in the more digital fintech kind of SaaS space. So finding the right, investors to speak with first of all we, we learned that very quickly in terms of like the timelines that that we need the amount of capital that we need to to really get uh going um it, it's hard for uh, a generalist fund to kind of suddenly jump shift gears and say actually yeah let's let's go into deep tech investments um just because you know they might not have the expertise or the the expectations not to say that we're not speaking of any generalist funds i, I think there are uh, definitely a, a, an emerging group that when they're focused on climate, as they're focused on climate, they're they're realizing, okay, actually, if we need step change solutions, it's got to be something in the hardware and deep tech space. We can't just, you know, make a new app for something and and have that solve climate change. So, um, yeah, it's it's speaking to the 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 right investors and then building that right ecosystem. Which, um, yeah, it's it hasn't been. It's not as established in, in kind of London, but it's definitely growing. Um, and, and within Europe, I, I think there's certainly a, a sense of um, understanding that that's the direction that we'll, we'll need to go as we, we get more serious about tackling climate change. Absolutely. Thanks for that advice. I completely agree as well. Um, there are, what really pleases me is there are a number of kind of, you know, these smaller shops either dedicated solely on energy transition or hydrogen or a specific sect part of deep tech um, that are kind of popping up all around Europe and the UK. And, you know, even at kind of American VCs that are looking into Europe now and kind of setting up a UK arm. Um, so it's really good to see these kind of investors maybe getting a little bit out of the traditional VC comfort zone or at least what has been for the last 10 years um, and right. not making, as you've alluded to, all these kind of copy-paste SaaS apps over and over. It just gets very tedious <laughs> after a while, but actually trying to kind of create real solutions that affect, you know, the atoms and not just the bits. Um, but Koji, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on, man. Um, great to talk about hydrogen and your company and everything. Really insightful. Just to finish off, do you have any call to actions that you like to do? Um, well, we are fundraising, so we always love speaking to investors, but I, I suspect by the time that uh, this is released, hopefully we would have um, kind of uh, finalized our uh, investor kind of consortium or if not closed the round. Um, but in general, we are very happy to speak with people who are interested in, in learning about kind of emerging uh, technologies in the hydrogen space and just energy space. Um, and that's the one thing that we found is the the climate community has, has been very collaborative, uh, for sure. So always happy to, to speak with anyone who's interested. Awesome, man. Well, it's been a pleasure talking. Take care of yourself and hope we can catch up soon. Thanks, James. That was great being on. Nice one. Take care.